For a last time this evening, we're going to look together at Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll deal with the whole of chapter 6. So if you have that open before you, that'll help you keep track of where I'm going. It's on page 1172, Galatians 6. When I was looking at this, I saw sort of three different chunks, verses 1 to 6, 7 to 10, and then a wonderful final chunk uh, from verse 11 through to 18 that allows us to, to dwell on some of the richness of Galatians as a whole. So let's, let's ask God's help as we come again to this, this wonderful letter. <clears throat> Father God, as we've read this part of your word, we have discovered together that you wish for us to be free, to be people who are not shackled by laws, by rules, by traditions or regulations. But Lord, we need your help here. We need your courage to take a step into freedom. We need your wisdom to know how to live free lives. And Lord, we thank you that you provide so much for us here in your word. Come now by your spirit and speak to us once more about this free life that you're calling us to. Amen. Paul has been insisting throughout this letter that Christians are to be free. Chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Last week, uh, when Dave was guiding us through the second half of chapter 5, we learned a little bit more about how to live in that, that freedom how, do, how are we going to live if we're not slaves to the law? How does, how does life actually work if there aren't to be rules and regulations dominating everything? Well, says Paul, we live by the Spirit. The Spirit of God in us teaches us how to live. As we keep in step with the Spirit, the, the sinful acts of the sinful nature diminish in our lives. And a new, crop, a new crop of fruit grows there. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and all those other things that Paul lists there. So that's, that's the context, that second half of chapter 5, as we come into the early verses of chapter 6. And Paul's still really on the same theme. How do we live by the Spirit? How, how do people live together if they're not to be dominated by lists of rules and regulations? His basic direction, I think, in the first six verses of chapter 6 is that we look out for each other. We're to look out firstly for our brothers and sisters around us. We look out for ourselves. And thirdly, we look out for those who minister God's word to us. So Paul begins by encouraging the Galatians to look out for their Christians and brothers and sisters around them. Look at verse 1. Brothers... If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. He goes on in verse 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Friends, it's a central part of mature Christian living that we're supposed to help each other when one of us goes wrong. If one of us goes off the rails, the rest of the community have a responsibility to help him or her back to where they should be. 
Let me suggest four very practical guidelines uh, for anybody to consider before they get involved in this kind of work. First step, don't do anything to correct a person until you're 100% sure of the sin. Make sure that the idea that you have in your head of where they've gone wrong is valid and check that before you, you jump in. Secondly, resp- recognize that not just anybody is qualified to correct others. Paul says that you who are spiritual should restore a sinning brother. Now, what does he mean by that? Does that mean we need a certain level of seniority in the church? A certain level of theological education? Actually not. What Paul's talking about here is a very, a very real sense that God's Spirit is working in us and that he is the one who's motivating us to, to step in and challenge this friend. Paul's talking here about people who work in the power of the Holy Spirit rather than in their own power. You see, the Holy Spirit's much wiser than I will ever be. The Holy Spirit's much more loving than I will ever be. So it's only when I work in the power of the Holy Spirit that I know that I dare get involved in work like this. Thirdly, we understand that the goal of any correcting we do is restoration. And that's interesting. If somebody falls, there's a tendency sometimes in us, let's go around there and, and give them what's coming to them. Let's go around there and, and let them hear it. Let's, let's go there and sort them out. But we're to go there with only one goal in mind, to help them back to a right relationship with Jesus, to help them open their lives once more to him and his transforming presence in them. We shouldn't touch anything like this if that isn't our only objective to restore the other person. Fourthly, when we're involved in restoring others, we must go about that work with a sure knowledge that we could easily, or in different circumstances, have fallen into exactly the same sin. If you find yourself wanting to to confront somebody or to talk to them, and you're absolutely sure in your own heart that you would never do that sin, if that's how you're, you're thinking... I would urge caution. Each one of us needs to be open to our own fallenness, our own capacity for sin, our own uh, shortcomings before we can be any use to any other person. There's no room for a self-righteousness, for a superiority complex. I think that's why Paul talks here about carrying each other's burdens. Whenever we go to meet a person who's fallen into sin, if we go without a burden, if it's not a heavy thing on your heart to be involved in that, if, if it's something that comes easy, you find yourself quite glib, and that's a bad place to be. We ought to be going with a, a burden ourselves about the sin of our brother and our sister. That ought to weigh down on us. Folks, I throw those out simply as, as practical suggestions 
to consider before we get involved in any work of correcting someone else. Now, you might be thinking and listening, Christoph, that was all very interesting, but listen, no way. I won't be any time soon going to confront anyone who falls into sin. And if anybody comes to confront me, I'll not be particularly interested in hearing them out. That's just not what I want. That's not what I want from my church life. Live and let live. Let the brother over there get on with what he's getting on with and the sister over there get on with. That's none of my business to step in and to be involved in the life of a brother or sister. It sounds like a nice answer. I suspect it's probably the way we do church most of the time. But it's not a biblical answer. This is not the way that God calls us to live. We need to be willing to exercise discipline. We need to be willing to look out for each other. David Watson tells of an occasion where he was working with a younger Christian. Uh, They were working very closely together at the time, and the younger Christian said to him, listen, I'm sorry that I've been difficult over these last few weeks. I know I haven't made it easy for anyone, but I wish you had said something to me. I needed your correction, but it never came. Watson reflects on it himself, and he said, had I sufficiently loved this man, I would have taken the necessary steps of gentle discipleship and discipline before he came out with this cry for help. Friends, do you know why we don't confront each other when we fall into sin? It's not because we love each other too much. It's because we love each other too little. We want to remain popular with each other. We want an easy acceptance. We want to be known as the person who's easy and and affable and great to get on with. But God's word challenges us here and asks us to consider something more. Friends, this is one of the most demanding aspects of church life. None of us wants to do this kind of thing, and yet I think we see here that we must. I've done it here on occasions in Kirkpatrick Memorial. There have been occasions, some much more dramatic than others, where I've had to go and talk to somebody about an area of their lives where they've, they've just simply walked from, from the will of God. And can I tell you, it's probably the part of my work that I least like. It's the part that I procrastinate about the longest, and it's the part that I lose sleep over the most before it happens. But can I tell you something else? By the grace of God, I I can think of people in this community who are walking better with Jesus Christ because somebody spoke to them. Because somebody raised an issue with them in love and challenged them and asked them, do you not want to be better in your walk with Christ than this? Friends, this is what Christ calls us to. Paul is right We need to look out for others 
in the community. There'd be something missing here if if Paul's emphasis was all on looking out for others. There's nobody more blind than the person who goes around fixing everybody else uh, while they're falling apart themselves. So actually the balance of what Paul talks about here is looking out for yourself, paying attention to yourself. In verse 1 he says, watch yourself or you also may be tempted. In verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else for each should carry his own load. I thought a useful way to try and understand some of the stuff that Paul's saying here is to look at an apparent contradiction in the passage and see if by making sense of that we can make sense of the whole. Look at verse 2. Paul says, carry each other's burdens. But then in verse 5 he says, each one should carry his own load. So what does he mean? In what respect are we to carry each other's burdens? And in what respect does each person carry their own load? Well, when Paul talks about a burden in verse 2, he uses the Greek word baros, which means a weight or a heavy load. In verse 5, he uses a different word, fortune, which was a common term for your backpack, the weight that you were, you were carrying, a sort of well-designed weight for you. So Paul says we're to to carry each other's burdens when the burden is too great or too heavy. We are then to help each other. But there's a burden that we actually can't share. And that's the burden that we don't need to share because it's the burden that each one of us has or the load that each one of us is to carry our own responsibility for ourselves before God. Folks, I think that's an important distinction to make. There are times when we do need the help of other people. And in a healthy Christian community, that help, God willing, will come. But none of this is to create a community of people who are not willing to take responsibility for their own lives. We are to be responsible before God ourselves. We're to grow in Christian maturity. We're to look ourselves to develop. We're not supposed to become people who depend indefinitely on others. We're to be strengthened and matured. So Paul's encouraged the Christians to look out for each other, to look out for themselves, and then in verse 6, he encourages them to look out for their teachers. Anyone who gives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. With his instructor, sorry. I I grew up thinking of this passage talking about a a sort of a, a a spiritual material exchange. The teacher in the Christian community brings a spiritual blessing. At least we hope that they do. And in return, the members of the community provide for the material needs of that teacher. And I think, I think that probably captures most of what Paul is talking about in this passage. There are dangers with that relationship, of course, and would be naive not to, to recognize them. On occasions, 
in the history of the church and still, it's possible for people to come into Christian ministry looking for a cushy number. You know, people joke with me that I only work one day a week. Uh, and I tell them, listen, I don't work the whole day. You know, I do a couple of hours in the morning and, and you know, a, a wee spell in the evening, but of the afternoon. And, of course, my, my tongue is in my cheek. This is, this, is, this is demanding work to anyone who will give themselves to it, but, but some people don't. The Christian church has always had and, and probably will always have people who, who look for the easy number and, and feel they've found it. There's another extreme where a congregation, because they pay the minister's stipend, they feel that there's some sort of power over him. They, they begin to exert that power. They begin to, to limit what the, the, the minister can preach, his freedom in sharing God's word with him. There's this unhealthy uh, power play where the congregation, simply because they pay a stipend, stifle the, the ministry that is offered to them. The relationship that Paul talks about here is a, a much, much richer one. He uses the word sharing all good things. And the word sharing is that wonderful New Testament Greek word koinonia. It talks about a rich fellowship. So the relationship between a, a teacher and the community is always to be a, one of, of a, a two-way friendship and fellowship. The teacher and those who are taught are both responsible to each other. Both are to bless one another. I hope you won't feel awkward for a moment if I thank you for taking care of me. I'll always be grateful to you for ensuring that, that my material needs are cared for, allowing me to preach the gospel and to give Christian leadership in this place. But there's much, much more to our partnership than that. Look at what Paul actually says. He says, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. All things. And you do that for me and for my family. You share all good things with us. You welcome us into your homes. You welcome us into your lives. And you teach us so, so much. You bring so much richness into our lives being part of this community. You see, I think we've misunderstood Christian ministry. It's not a one-way street. Whenever Christian ministry is working properly, it's, it's a wonderful giving and taking. Henri Nouwen says, a redemptive teaching relationship is bilateral. The teacher has to learn from his student. Teachers and students are fellow men who together are searching for what is true, meaningful, and valid, and who give each other the chance to play each other's roles. So I want to say to you this evening, to those who, who lead worship here, who preach to our musicians and our singers, to all of you who contribute in making this a vibrant community of Jesus Christ. I want to say thank you. Thank you for doing what, what God's Word encourages here. 
Thank you for sharing all good things with me as I try to teach. Folks, I think we're coming to the end of a section here ever since chapter 5 and verse 13 where Paul's been teaching the Galatians how to live together as a community no longer dominated by rules. Keep in step with God's Spirit. Allow God's Spirit to work and work and work through you. Use your freedom to grow in love. Look out for one another, for yourselves, for your teachers. It seems to me that Paul is is pulling us away from legalism, from obeying rules and commands into an organic, healthy life where God works in us and through us. In chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I tried to work out as I was preparing what these two what these two different ways of living actually involve. And here's my conclusion. I offer it to you. It may make sense to you or not. In a life that is structured around rules, we can get away with avoiding relationships. We don't really need to take each other very seriously. We just have a look to see what's happened. If somebody disobeys the rules, smack, you sort out whatever the punishment, whatever the sanction is, you deal with it and move on. Rules allow you to do that. Rules are abstractions and relationships are personal. And we're followers of Jesus Christ. He always put people before rules. He demonstrated that he'd rather look out for people and see them restored and see rules kept. And friends, if we're to be in his image, if this church is to demonstrate Jesus Christ for the world, then we must live like this. We must be willing for a little bit of a an uncertainty from time to time about how things work out, a sense that that not everything is regulated and rule-driven, but a priority for relationships and seeing fallen people restored. There's a second part in this passage which I'm going to deal with very, very quickly, just in a moment. In verses 7 to 10, Paul enunciates a principle that a man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Paul's making an important point here. Every decision that we make, every action that we choose to do, shapes the kind of people that we become. Whenever I'm talking to people in a pastoral setting, I sometimes put it like this. The decisions that we're making today 
The steps that you and I are taking in this very, very ordinary week, these are all contributing to our character. Who I am when I'm 50 or when I'm 80 is is being built up out of the decisions and actions of today. Friends, Paul's right. When it comes to our own character, the human personality, we reap what we sow. We will be the people, the natural outcome of these lives that we live day by day. I want to spend the remainder of our time in this wonderful last section of Galatians. Paul's bringing his letter to a close, and as he does so, I think he gives us most of the letter again in microcosm. I'm not going to deal in any detail with the argument, but let's remind ourselves of what's happening here. He reminds us one last time of the problem. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Folks, I hope I'm looking around and I see that maybe 80 or 90% of you have been here for most of our Galatians series. So I hope you'll get this. For others, hang on tight and see if you can, from this brief summary, you can get enough to understand what Paul is saying here. The whole purpose of Paul's letter has been to bolster young Christians in a church in Galatia. There are Jewish Christians who are forcing them to be circumcised and to take on Jewish traditions and laws. They're forcing this agenda not because they believe that you, you need to be, that, that you're justified by works, that this is what makes us right with God. It's because they're not willing to deal with the consequences of saying that a person is justified by faith in Christ alone. You see, that would mean that a Gentile could become a member of the family of God and bypass Judaism. It means that a Gentile could be a member of the family of God and bypass all the Jewish traditions and the law. And that idea that somebody could be a member of the family of God outside of Judaism was entirely unpalatable to the Jewish world. So these Jewish Christians in Galatia They wanted to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul says in verse 13, They want you to be circumcised so that they may boast about your flesh. The Jewish Christians in Galatia, they wanted to stand before the wider Jewish world. And they wanted to say, look, these Gentiles have come to faith in Christ They've been circumcised. They're keeping the law. They're respectable. We're okay. Christianity is respectable. I love that wee video, that wee DVD that Gareth showed us, contrasting the crowd and the cross. This is the crowd. The notion that we can be respectable, that we can be what other people want us to be. Paul says that's what these guys want. They want to follow Christ, 
but at the same time they want to be respectable before the world around them. And Paul comes in and he says, no. We aren't respectable and we can't be. May I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's nothing respectable about Christian faith, Paul says. Our boast is the cross. And he's talking about the cross here because he knows that it's the ultimate symbol of shame. Friends, we have 2,000 years of religious art to inoculate us against the shame of the cross of Jesus Christ. Josephus said it was the most miserable of deaths, the worst extreme of the tortures inflicted upon slaves, an accursed thing and a plague. In Jewish thought, anyone who was crucified was clearly under the curse of God. Paul said so in Galatians 3.13. Everyone hung on a tree is cursed. Folks, I don't know if that's tangible enough for us. I don't know if we get that. I was thinking as I was preparing this week of different ways in which cultures humiliate In 1980s and 1990s South Africa, necklace killings were common. Gary, could you show that first slide for us? I'm sorry there's a bit of sun on the screen. I don't know if you can see. If a collaborator was caught, the mob hung a tire around his neck, filled it with petrol, and lit it. So this person would burn with burning rubber over their faces. It was a gruesome way to die, and it marked someone out as a traitor. Closer to home, tarring and feathering is used in our paramilitary communities. I don't know how familiar you are with that. If we could show the second slide. Sorry again. I hope you can, you can make that out. The victim's covered in boiling tar... It happens in the presence of a witnessing crowd. People, often women and children, come by and throw feathers over the, the, the victim to humiliate them. This photograph I'm showing here, by the way, is of an incident in 2007 in South Belfast. This is our culture's chosen method of humiliation. The sign around that victim's neck reads, I am a drug-dealing scumbag. Friends, when Jesus Christ was crucified, he experienced his culture's equivalent of being tar and feathered or of a necklace killing. The whole purpose of the mode of Jesus' death was humiliation and shame. Jesus wasn't respectable. 
Friends, we boast in what is unrespectable, what is shameful, what is open to mocking and ridicule and, and open to be despised. That's what we boast in. And once we do that, and if we do that, if we can identify ourselves with Jesus Christ in this way, then the same community that that shunned him will shun us. But let me tell you this. When it does that, when it shuns us, when it mocks us, when it makes it clear to us that we are not respectable, then its power over us is done. There's nothing more that they can do to us once they've shown that we're unrespectable. Friends, can we in the church of Jesus Christ give up the dream of respectability? That's what Paul preaches in Galatians chapter 6. He asks us to die to the world, to boast only in Christ, to say to the world, what you think of us matters not. We don't care. We have died to all of that. We live now only in Christ. We are free. We're free to be ourselves. We're free to be the people Christ calls us to be. We're free to enter into lives full of God's Spirit, lived out in love. May I never boast, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let us pray.